today on Against the Grain. The two existential dangers of our time, says Joseph Mosco, are climate disruption and nuclear weapons. The first is the product of petrochemical capitalism. Around the second, an elaborate fear-based U.S. national security culture has been constructed. I'm C.S. The University of Chicago scholar talks about his book, The Future of Fallout, and other episodes in radioactive world-making coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Fear of mass destruction is what, according to my guest today, the U.S. population was taught to feel after 1945, fear specifically of nuclear annihilation. If the nuclear crisis isn't over, and Joseph Mosco is convinced it isn't, what about climate crisis and all the anxiety that provokes? Where do these two existential dangers, climate disruption and nuclear weapons, intersect? And what have nuclear nationalism and petrochemical capitalism, to use Moscow's terms, done to create and exacerbate these threats to our very existence? Joseph Moscow is professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. His new book is The Future of Fallout and Other Episodes in Radioactive Worldmaking. When Joe and I connected recently, I asked him about mass media reporting about crisis, about crises currently unfolding and crises to come. The issue of crisis, I think, is one that's super diagnostic of our moment in the sense that it's much easier to tell a story about what is going wrong in the world and what kind of urgent conditions are emerging than to respond with positive modes of redress and of answering rather fundamental conditions that are are shaping the world. So part of what uh, the future of fallout uh, and other episodes in radioactive world making is about is tracking kind of the evolution of a political culture that uses crisis talk as a way to basically limit political potential and to freeze out the kind of collective mobilization that I think many people assume is embedded in any evocation of crisis, where, you know, usually the line is, you know, somebody declares a crisis and this is a call to the collective to respond to it and to mobilize resources to create a pre-crisis condition. Um, But many of the problems that we're dealing with right now are so long-term and have such deep kind of structural relations to our economy, our national security, our environmental conditions, that the temporal logic of crisis doesn't really function in the way in which most people expect it to or want it to. And therefore, uh, a kind of media culture that's rehearsing the kind of announcement of urgent conditions all the time is um, actually not, I think, helping change the world and restoring or creating the terms for a more peaceful and secure every day. And so many of the chapters in the book are efforts to either explain that and show how that came into historical formation or to point to a moment where things might have been done or handled differently and that might have had huge implications for the world that we find ourselves in right now with all of its many, many tiered challenges. Uh, but it's mostly to, to really issue a provocation around the reliance on crisis uh, as a way to mobilize political discourse and political resources. Tell us a bit more about what you were saying about how crisis talk in the, the mass media today invites us to return or to want to return to pre-crisis conditions and why you think that's kind of inadequate given the trajectory of what's going on in this country and around the globe over the last uh, several decades and, and the last century, really. So the issue of crisis is one that evokes a notion of some kind of temporal mode of reasoning about a prior state of conditions that have become undone in some way that creates urgency and worry and that 
collective action could restore to a pre-crisis state. So it is a modality of, of politics that suggests that there's a prior state that's much better than the current one, and that that should be the goal of the political, which is to return to that pre-crisis mode. And when you think about the really large-scale challenges of the current moment, I'm not sure that really functions anymore. And so it raises the question of why crisis talk is kind of this proliferating refrain when the conditions that I think really need address might be, you know, kind of parsed as, you know, the, the United States has been involved in 20 years now of counterterror warfare around the world. Many people, I think most, would say that has um, been a hyper-violent and non-successful endeavor, and yet, in many respects, it goes on and has been naturalized as a kind of coordinate of national security policy involving the maintenance of 800-plus military bases around the world, lots of covert action, lots of special forces, and yet we don't have a way of thinking about that collectively. Alternatively, we could think about conditions of the global environment in which every Earth scientist has been uh, loudly proclaiming across their multidisciplinary uh, toolkits that something very serious is happening with atmospheric chemistry that is shifting the temperature of oceans, um, that is warming the planet, that is producing very large-scale species decline, and that the projections all are that those things are going to amplify over the coming decades unless something really serious happens around carbon emissions and really a very serious uh, planetary-scale effort to deal with the legacies of petrochemical capitalism. And yet crisis doesn't quite ap apply to that given how long the problem set is and how still unfolding the conditions are. And this is before we get to questions of global finance and the extreme kind of concentration in wealth in most major countries around the world, including the United States, which has really pushed our um, financial order into worlds where inequality is at record levels and intensifying. And uh, we don't seem to have vocabularies that can think on structural terms about existing conditions. And so uh, in the absence of those languages and those commitments and those kind of longer term conversations, crisis talk is used to signal urgency and care and a desire for a kind of different order. But stuck in the middle of crisis talk is the assumption that what you're really trying to get back to is an earlier condition that you want to get back to some prior moment in the nature of national security or environmental conditions or global capital. And I think it's very hard to figure out what that moment might be, um, given that these are structural conditions that in each of those respects have had very serious uh, long-term structures of violence attached to them, and also very unequal experiences depending on who you are on the planet where you're located and um, you know what your position is. And so crisis talk, I think, ends up being a conservative idiom that is really kind of anti-change in the end. And I think it has been mobilized in our media sphere as a kind of alibi for thinking more seriously about the kinds of problems that require very long-term infrastructural changes, ideological uh, changes, as well as commitments to building a, a very radically different kind of future. All right. You, uh, you mentioned crisis talk being a, a conservative modality. You use that word in, in your book. You write also that it's become a counter-revolutionary force. We are invited to fear the future and reject the power of collective agency. And this uh, argument is forwarded in a chapter of your book called The Crisis in Crisis. In this chapter, you link the two existential dangers of our time, climate crisis and nuclear crisis. What are the present-day contours of the nuclear crisis? 
Yes, well, the, the crisis in crisis is a way of also signaling that there might be other eras in time where crisis talk functions differently than the way it does right now in the 21st century. And the ultimate form of crisis is the domain that really gets invented in 1945 with the notion of existential danger. And existential danger is connected to nuclear weaponry and the idea of a kind of very fast totalizing warfare that could eliminate a nation state within uh, very few minutes actually of conflict. And from 45 on, uh, my argument is, is that the United States has built a political culture, a national security culture, around that concept. And part of that is evidenced in the building out of a national security state and the transition from having a department of war to a department of defense, uh, which happens in, in 47. And this mode to thinking about a kind of permanent emergency condition as the object of a new national security infrastructure that is involved in kind of managing minute-to-minute uh, -minute forms of collective and total danger. Now, in those early moments, that danger is already projected. It's not quite technically feasible. And so if you look at the, the difference between the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you start to see the infrastructure building to create the thing that's already being imagined by the security state, which is a always-on apparatus for nuclear warfare that is active 24 hours a day, seven days a week in perpetuity, and where the, the window of what ends up being defense against uh, potential nuclear warfare shrinks and becomes tighter and tighter in time um, down to, you know, by the 19, early 1960s forward, something like a 15-minute window of warning on a potential start of a nuclear war. And what that means is that the idea of the everyday gets colonized by an idea of this ultimate risk. And there's a whole set of, you know, pedagogical projects that start in the early Cold War and continue through the War on Terror, which are really designed to teach citizens to fear certain potentialities in the world and to trust that the state will protect them from those modalities. In the Cold War, it was, of course, the, the fear of a nuclear strike from the Soviet Union. And after 2001, it was this much more amorphous kind of figure, much more flexible, of a terrorist with a WMD. And these forms are affective recruitments. They teach people to feel a particular way and to be mobilized through feelings in a particular way. They have imaginative components in the sense that they start to designate what kind of dangers are possible in the world and which ones are, are the state concerned about and do state agencies try to interact with. And then also they um, have this very powerful effect of eliminating the space for other kinds of futurities, for um, other kinds of arguments about the kinds of everyday insecurities that most people are living at the level of their physical health, their housing, their uh, economic security that are amplifying over this time. And so my argument is, is that as the U.S. develops a very elaborate national security discourse and culture around existential danger, it also has less and less time for thinking about those things that a um, non-national security state might be actually focused on very directly, which has to do with health, environmental safety, education, infrastructure, uh, and so on. And we're now living in a moment where we are 70 plus years into that conundrum. And so we have a very contradictory state of affairs in the United States with uh, a huge ongoing investment in national security, particularly focused around nuclear weapons, and deep structural problems at every other infrastructural level in society. Joseph Mosco joins us on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. He is professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. 
and we are talking about his new book. It's called The Future of Fallout and Other Episodes in Radioactive World Making. It's published by Duke University Press. Well, one could say that once the atomic bomb was developed and our enemy, the Cold War enemy, had it and could deploy it, that it was the duty and the responsibility of the state, of the U.S. government, to inform its citizens of the possibility of a of nuclear annihilation. What you're suggesting in this book is that it wasn't just a project of providing information. It was a project of manipulation, manipulation of the U.S. public. So where is the line between informing, uh, which I think any government that does perceive a, an existential threat, you know, there's a duty to, to let people know so that they can act accordingly. Uh, what's the difference between that and, and actually actively manipulating people and uh, fomenting a kind of fear in them that affects the, the way they act, the way they think, and the way they imagine? That's a wonderful question and such a serious one. Uh, and I think, you know, it's the precise question that we could have a very long and very uh, wide kind of social discussion of because what's at the center of that is what is the project of the security state. And I would say that in the U.S., post-World War II in particular, but it has prior forms as well, we have this kind of foundational contradiction of a state that advocates and promotes democratic principles of transparency and representation, but is also been linked to a form of imperial politics that relies on covert action and the manipulation of uh, politics both domestically and internationally. And so at any given era, when you ask the question that you just did, um, one could look for what are the dynamics of this contradiction between the positive form of American democracy, which states a whole set of principles that are admirable in their collectivity and in their inclusion and in their hope for peace, versus the practices of the state, which have in many respects uh, worked extremely diligently and using every mechanism available to stifle domestic protest and uh, mobilizations and to intervene in other, other states, either through uh, covert actions or through explicit uh, modes of threat. And so this is, I think, the challenge of um, our moment right now is to understand both that history and you know, its manifold forms, but also to think very seriously about what it means when the state now argues for a particular kind of emergency condition, given that history. And the lesson of 2001 and the creation of the counter-terrorist state apparatus, I think, is one that shows that that impulse for exaggeration, for manipulation, for attaching projects that are outside of the simple one of informing citizens about an emerging danger that has, you know, documented kind of um, projects and effects um, is still very lively and uh, that that is something that can be tracked in, you know, in states around the world right now, but also um, that we need to have a, a different level of kind of assessment of um, how our domestic discourse is uh, constituted. Now I'll say one other kind of general thing, which is that the early Cold War state had a verifiable problem, which is a brand new technology, nuclear weapons, that had been developed in secret, that were used in secret, that uh, the American public had no knowledge of. And they could see an emerging political order that they were very involved in building as well that was going to be structured around this confrontation over this new technology, which had, you know, hyperviolence at its, you know, everyday core. And so the, the early conversations around how to handle that were very much along the lines of what would be the line 
that would be proper for informing citizens about an emerging technological capability that would not terrify them, but that would activate them as political subjects. And so there are these kind of incredible um, policy debates about the differences between fear and terror as mobilizing uh, agents. These are, this is a, a discourse that I discuss in my second book, The Theater of Operations, in some detail, and track up through the war on terror and the implications for kind of later eras. And, you know, that is a very serious kind of public policy question in which I think you could have um, many different perspectives on, on, you know, the righteousness of the decisions that were made and also the political projects that were pursued. But I think very quickly after that, the um, effort to, cons to constitute Americans as nuclear subjects, that is, as entities that understand existential danger in the way in, in a way that aligns with state interests becomes very much the the goal and that is behind a giant kind of propaganda effort through uh, civil defense and through fomenting images of uh, foreign danger in ways that sometimes were correct sometimes were made up and uh, it becomes a basis for um, how the political parties actually organize their claim on what they are going to promise to each generation of voters. And it becomes a, a huge distortion field right in the center of American democracy that is amplified by the accompanying infrastructure, which is that nuclear weapons um, authorize and amplify the building out of a secret national security state, which is not only involved in you know agencies like the CIA and the national security agencies, but the entire apparatus of scientific development, the uh, military deployment, this very gigantic national and ultimately international infrastructure around nuclear weapons is all constituted via state secrecy. And so that also has a huge distorting effect on democratic practice and it is consolidated then in the idea also of a president that gets to have sole authority on how to use these ultimate weapons. Uh, one that kind of circumvents the powers of Congress, um, certainly, um, you know, normal kind of democratic process. So I think, you know, the, the story post-1945, which is usually the era of thinking about the ascendancy of American power in the world economically, militarily, and so on, is also one where we have a growing distortion in the very concept of what a democratic order is uh, via the nuclear danger. And what the future of fallout is also trying to point out is that that focus on a singular danger in the sense of the bomb as the ultimate kind of mode of endangerment of the era blocks attention to other forms of uh, collective danger that are working on an equal scale. And primarily, this is the era in which uh, carbon emissions are starting to shift atmospheric chemistry and the global environment in a way that now we talk about as global warming as a, as a kind of collective planetary threat that is um, on an equal scale to nuclear weapons, even though their internal constitution and the timeframes that they work on are very different. And so what I ultimately want to ask in the book is how it is that since 1945, two dangers the size of the entire planet emerge, but without equal recognition to each of them. I'm CS. Joseph Mosco is my guest. He teaches anthropology at the University of Chicago. Again, his new book is The Future of Fallout and Other Episodes in Radioactive Worldmaking. Yeah, you speak about the climate crisis and the nuclear crisis as largely coterminous periods. And yet, you know, a lot of people would think, well, you know, we've really only been hearing about the climate crisis in the last, you know, decade or two. I mean, there were some hints of it in the, in the late 20th century. Uh, what was going on, especially in the U.S., because uh, that's the focus of much of your book, in the U.S., as far as um, the patterns of consumption among U.S. consumers that point toward the climate crisis as having a much longer horizon than we might think? Yeah, it's a wonderful question and a really serious one, and it upends 
many of the kind of conventional narratives that we talk about, the kind of grand project of American prosperity uh, post-World War II, which of course is also the nuclear age. We have this story that the birth of the consumer society and the rise of a particular American kind of consumer economy, which was then exported around the world uh, based on consumption, on um, planned obsolescence in many respects, on travel, and on petrochemical capitalism in particular, um, really created the idea of a robust middle class in which uh, having a lot of consumer items and a lot of freedom and mobility uh, were kind of promoted as an icon of a way of living that was modern, that was uh, had an American inflection and had a lot of corporate uh, innovation behind it. Well, what we now understand through the work of many Earth scientists uh, is that the precise period in the mid-20th century in which the atomic bomb is created, uh, 1945 and afterwards, is also the era of an accelerating consumer society. Uh, Earth scientists talk about this as the period of the great acceleration, in which if you look at consumption across, let's say, petrochemical capital, in terms of uh, travel, in terms of the creation of plastics, even things like the birth of the fast food restaurant, uh, McDonald's being the kind of iconic one, um, track really fundamental changes in the ecology of the planet from the chemical composition of air to the uh, acidity of the ocean to biodiversity of uh, particular ecological ranges and so on. And moving back to the, the nuclear crisis, what should we know about U.S. plans to modernize its nuclear arsenal? Yes, this is a really serious issue right now, one that has not been um, widely publicized in the United States. And let me uh, speak for a second about three dynamics that are happening at the same time around nuclear politics that do not agree with one another and that suggest we are in a very different political and conceptual moment in terms of thinking about the nuclear danger. So the first would be, and this comes out of our discussion earlier about this question of a consumer economy and petrochemical capitalism, which is that uh, since 2009-2010, there has been a very serious scientific effort among geologists and earth scientists to ask a very fundamental question, which is, is there a marker in earthly conditions right now of human activity at the scale of the planet? And uh, the formal question around it is, uh, should geology change its temporal ordering of the history of the earth to add a new periodization called the Anthropocene, to designate a period in which no matter where you go on the planet, you can find a uh, effect of human industrial activity. And this has been a hugely wide-ranging conversation with lots of different uh, earth scientists uh, working on it from their respective disciplines. It's also provoked quite a wide-ranging uh, and interesting uh, debate in the humanities and the social sciences about what would be the right periodization for such a designation. But in the last couple of years, geologists in particular have identified the radioactive signature from the atmospheric nuclear testing of the 1950s as a marker in the Earth that can be found everywhere, literally on the planet, and that will be um, present for tens of thousands of years. And so it meets this kind of technical criteria of their designation for uh, naming a new geological epoch. So this means that what the earth scientists are saying right now is that the first 15, 20 years of the nuclear age was such a traumatic episode in the history of the planet that it should now be the inaugural start to a new way we tell the story about uh, the geological history of the Earth. Right, and perhaps anticipating these kinds of global environmental 
effects, effects on, on human beings, of course, as well. There was a, a concerted effort by non-nuclear states to, to do something on the international level to, to try and uh, stop, to stop the, the nuclear arms race, to uh, prevent things like uh, testing uh, with all its environmental effects from, from happening, correct? Absolutely, and there are several periods of intense international activism. Uh, one would be in the uh, late 1950s, early 60s, which is a global campaign against uh, radioactive fallout, and that's a key moment in the birth of uh, the environmental movement and also leads up to the 1963 treaty against uh, nuclear testing, which is both simultaneously the first nuclear arms agreement and also the first environmental international treaty. And so we have this kind of linked concern throughout the second half of the 20th century about nuclear weapons and uh, environmental conditions and the terms of international law. Now in recent years, the uh, huge achievement of non-nuclear states has been to mobilize, and it's been a very long, very serious campaign at the United Nations to create and pass a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which actually entered into force earlier this year on January 22nd. And this is a designation of nuclear weapons as an illegal technology, joining a list of other technologies like chemical and biological weapons. And uh, it's a very forceful reply of non-nuclear states to uh, acknowledge that the promise that was embedded in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty that was um, created in the late 1960s and uh, has many nuclear states as signatories to get out of the nuclear weapons business as quickly as possible, that that was never um, uh, followed up on and that nuclear states continued to build and deploy nuclear weapons while being part of that treaty that kind of promised that uh, the end of uh, the weapons regime was at hand. And so the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which has not had a lot of publicity in the United States, and one of the, the truly kind of shocking things of the last, let's say, five, six years is that very major things are happening in nuclear policy that once would have been at the center of news reporting and national debates and certainly part of the official um, political questioning of candidates for office have kind of fallen away from uh, public consideration. And uh, this has created a very new uh, dynamic, I think, in uh, U.S. politics. I'm CS. This is Against of a Grain on Pacifica Radio. Joseph Mosco joins me, M-A-S-C-O. He is an anthropologist based at the University of Chicago. His books include The Theater of Operations, National Security Affect from the Cold War to the War on Terror, and the Nuclear Borderlands, the Manhattan Project in post-Cold War New Mexico. We are talking about his new book. It's called The Future of Fallout and Other Episodes in Radioactive Worldmaking. So you were referring to nuclear policymaking in the U.S. Uh, in the last several years that really hasn't been reported on widely, hasn't been disseminated widely, certainly hasn't been publicized widely by the U.S. government. Uh, what should we know about the U.S. government's intentions with its nuclear arsenal, uh, what it wants to do with that arsenal, and how serious it is in light of non-nuclear states' desires to rein in nuclear proliferation, how intent it is to, to follow those kinds of uh, treaties or the gist of those treaties? Yes, thank you for that question. I mean, it's a it's a very um, important set of concerns here around what's happened to the international regimes around non-proliferation. And one can point to the post-2001 counterterrorist state uh, and the George W. Bush administration, which started to kind of pull out of many of the international uh, agreements around non-proliferation and to demobilize that um, set of instruments, let's say, for managing the nuclear danger. 
And of course, this was part of a, a large-scale kind of recalibration of what that nuclear danger was, um, you know, under the logics of the war on terror in which um, there were a lot of new imaginaries and discourses around imminent nuclear danger from, uh, not from states, but from uh, terrorist groups and so on. And it had a huge effect on reanimating uh, certain aspects of the nuclear project. So we are now uh, two decades into a project where a significant amount of energy has gone into dismantling parts of the international legal regime that were built up over 50 years of Cold War and post-Cold War politics. At the same time, and I've mentioned this, that the um, non-nuclear states have successfully entered into force a treaty to ban nuclear weapons, which would put now theoretically every nuclear state at odds uh, with the United Nations and with a, the, a brand new kind of legal regime passed by non-nuclear states, um, the U.S. and uh, Russia and China are very much involved in what is termed nuclear modernization. In the U.S. context, what this means is a projected multi-decade project to the tune that's now estimated is between 1.3 and 1.5 trillion dollars over the coming decades to build new nuclear weapons and to build a new triad of planes and intercontinental missiles and uh, bombers and submarines that will be the delivery vehicles for those weapons. And so essentially the ongoing commitment of the U.S. nuclear state is to rebuild the core of its Cold War uh, nuclear apparatus to upgrade it with uh, new capacities using new technologies and to also assume a deeper future horizon for the nuclear complex itself where throughout the um, much of the 20th century there was always a kind of rhetorical commitment that nuclear weapons were a a necessary answer to a bad problem state and that uh, if international order could resolve itself more peacefully there would be no need for nuclear weapons. Uh, the current nuclear states are getting ready to maintain and advance their nuclear capabilities um, through the 21st century. So we're, we're in the midst, uh, to put it uh, directly, of a new arms race, but a new arms race that will not look like the one that structured the mid part of the 20th century. If you think about the radical technological changes in computation, in material science, and in informatics that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years, that's the new infrastructure for supporting uh, the building out of a new nuclear complex. And uh, this has not been on the ballot. This has not been subject to public debate. It's something that links the Obama defense plan, to the Trump defense plan, to the Biden defense plan. So it also crosses administrations with uh, seemingly very different kind of political projects, but around nuclear weapons they are largely in agreement that the U.S. is investing massively in uh, rebuilding and extending its nuclear capabilities. And moving back to the climate crisis, we could talk about a U.S. government commitments in relation to treaties, you know, international accords on the environment and on the climate like Paris. But your book suggests that perhaps a more important focus is on the U.S.'s, as you call it, its petrochemical capitalist way of being, its uh, mode of operation. What is your sense of the U.S. government's commitment to to continuing to fuel petrochemical capitalism. And I asked this uh, partly in relation to something you wrote, I think a few years ago, about the opening up of large domestic shale formations for oil and gas extraction. Exactly, yeah. The, the whole question of, uh, of American power is tied up uh, historically in petrochemical capitalism, access to oil, control of oil, and we can think just from 2001 forward to the logics around uh, particularly the invasion of Iraq and uh, the relationship of that entire enterprise, not only to the claims that um, the reason to invade Iraq was that it was involved in weapons of mass destruction, that it was to trying to develop a covert nuclear capability, and that it was an urgent American and allied um, 
project to intervene before something disastrous happened. If you remember, part of that war on terror uh, logic for the invasion of Iraq was the phrase, we don't want the smoking gun of the nuclear project to be a mushroom cloud, which was a whole kind of affective recruitment and imaginary project building on you know, the previous half century of nuclear nationalism. But that nuclear campaign around the invasion of Iraq was also very much tied to the geopolitical concerns about controlling oil fields and uh, managing who has access to those resources. In subsequent years, the development of fracking, of um, shale extraction, which involves some new drilling techniques, but also quite crucially involved in the um, George W. Bush administration, the exemption of oil companies dealing with uh, shale extraction from both the Drinking Water Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Clean Air Act. So it was essentially given an environmental pass for this new kind of drilling. Uh, several historic shale deposits within North America, uh, in the Dakotas and the Permian Basin in uh, West Texas in particular, were opened up as gigantic sources of new energy. And that has transformed uh, in recent years the U.S. from a country that was not producing enough oil and natural gas to support itself to the leading state in producing both. And so it's been a very significant kind of shift in the kind of geopolitics of oil as well as the understandings around national security and natural resources. That's Joseph Musco, teaches anthropology at the University of Chicago, joins us on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. We've been talking, uh, Joe, about portions of your new book, The Future of Fallout, and other episodes in Radioactive World Making. You can find a link to that book and to Joe and his work on our website, againstthegrain.org. But there's a lot that we haven't talked about. So can you give us a sense of what else this book contains, what else it addresses? Yes, so this is a a collection of essays which really are my effort to understand the changing kind of conditions of American life in particular. And the, the lead essay, The Future of Fallout, theorizes this question of lag that we've been talking about. And by lag, I mean the fact that nuclear nationalism, petrochemical capitalism, um, which are really consolidated as the kind of, you know, core of American commerce and political power and geopolitics in the mid-20th century, that we are now dealing with the effects of those commitments, but displaced in time in a way that was very hard to understand as they were unfolding. And that we have now lots of different processes, particularly around environmental conditions, where We're really dealing with the decisions, the activities, the ways of living, the industrial and corporate practices, national security practices um, that that took place decades ago. And we are now living in a kind of aftermath of those conditions. And so much of the book is, is trying to ask the question, how were those processes normalized as they were unfolding in real time? What were the invitations to think about the world in a particular way, to worry about the world in a particular way? Um, And how is it now that we're uh, forced to kind of recalibrate some very basic assumptions about what citizenship and security, uh, environmental integrity, and so on are in light of what we now understand as the kind of cumulative force of investing in the bomb and investing in oil as the kind of coordinating principles of economy and the world. And so I talk about radioactive world making as a, a term for talking about like actually building out an ontological relationship to material conditions in the world that has both imaginaries attached to it, how we think about the present, how we think about the future, and affective recruitments to what we're worried about, what we're invested in, and how those things have been just radically shaped by these two very uh, damaging uh, industrial forms. Uh, nuclear weapons, and oil. And so each chapter takes a different look at that from a different historical moment using a different archive. And it's a very wide-ranging effort to destabilize a kind of accepted story about uh, the last 75 years, about what's been built in the U.S., what the uh, ideas are about 
everything from security to modalities of the good life to questions around race and gender and national security uh, issues. Um, it also deals with what it means to be living in a period of constant technological revolution, which promises a uh, ever-improving, even utopian future, even as the uh, accumulating effects of uh, some of these technological revolutions are things like the bomb with all of its negative attributes or uh, petrochemical capitalism with its environmental destabilization. And so it's, uh, it's an effort to um, track back and forth between the utopian promise of American industry and economy uh, and technology and its um, more damaging and apocalyptic imaginaries around those very same forms. So we, we began this hour talking about crisis talk, right? The, the, the prevalence of the theme of crisis in mass media reporting, right? You turn on the news and it's, it's just all about this crisis and that, uh, public health, environmental, international security, national security. And uh, you were talking about how that kind of talk is, is fundamentally conservative. It makes us it encourages us to think in a certain way. And in a sense, it, it paralyzes collective action. It discourages it. So how do you think about the project of kind of reorienting the U.S. public toward collective action, toward uh, action that, that is sane, uh, that, that does isn't really focused so much on, on fear, driven so much by fear, but can imagine new possibilities, can think about the future in ways that, that isn't uh, shrouded in you know, dismay and utter doubt, uh, nihilism, and a sense of just overwhelming pessimism? Well, that is the question of our, of our moment right now, and it's such a serious one. And, and I think the thing I would say to start is just to recognize the phenomenal possibility and energy and expertise and economic power that could be mobilized on any given issue at any given time right now. And so part of my critique about the way crisis talk functions in our era right now is that it focuses people on, on documenting a, a negative outcome without building the necessary kind of coalition and alternative imaginaries that might suggest not just a kind of return to a pre-crisis state, but actually a change in the foundational conditions of society. And because the issues that we're talking about right now are so imbricated in one another, um, I think a lot about the challenge of how to explain a climate refugee right now. What would we say is the correct diagnosis of somebody who's been forced out of uh, their home because of a changing climate, hot or cold or raising oceans or so on. Would we say that that's simply an environmental condition? Well, then we have to talk about the amplifying force of petrochemical capitalism. If we're talking about petrochemical capitalism, we also have to talk about the implications of uh, military geopolitics in support of that enterprise. If we're doing that, then we're also involved in thinking deeply about the corporate financing defense budgets that enable these forms to function in the world. So I'm not sure how one could describe and explain in a simple way what the forces are that would drive somebody onto the road to get away from the place that they've uh, been raised uh, under these conditions of a kind of radically changing climate. And so that's not a crisis. That's something more than a demand to return to some prior conditions. That's something that forces us to address some very basic structural conditions in global finance, in international relations, in the way that we mobilize technology and uh, corporate capital, and that we take a very different relationship towards land, towards water, towards atmosphere. And that just requires much more creativity and not a kind of default position that there was a uh, prior moment that made sense. Because of course, for so many people, you know, in North America in particular, when we're thinking about uh, the long legacies of anti-blackness, of indigenous dispossession, of anti-immigrant uh, politics, 
Um, it's not clear which, which prior era you would say is the, the moment pre-crisis. So the invitation of the crisis and crisis piece is for people to very formally think about what are the kinds of arguments and recruitments that one could make right now that are not grounded in uh, negative futurities, that are efforts to imagine new modes of collectivity and new distributions of resources and new organizations of capacities that um, might break with some of these long-standing patterns of um, very deep structurally oriented forms of violence um, that I group under the uh, phrases of nuclear nationalism and petrochemical capitalism that we now are, have very well documented evidence of the damage that they've caused to collective conditions and to take that seriously as an invitation to um, move past those forms. And I want to add following up on our conversation about the Anthropocene about the prohibition on, on nuclear warfare and the nuclear modernization plan, I think each one of these really organizes a very different kind of future. They conflict with one another. Um, one could say right now that uh, you know nuclear modernization has yet to come under re review of the uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of, of Nuclear Weapons, which would render the modernization plans, I think, uh, illegal under international law. And so there's um, huge stakes in our political moment for attending to what's going on in terms of nuclear politics. And unfortunately, we're at a moment where many of the longstanding institutions and media commitments to tracking this as a basic form of, of American politics um, have turned to other issues and other modes of crisis talk. So I encourage listeners to uh, pay attention to what's going on with uh, not only nuclear budgets, but with the contest over which nuclear future is the one that you want to live in. Joseph Mosco, again, M-A-S-C-O, anthropologist based at the University of Chicago. His books include The Nuclear Borderlands and The Theater of Operations. His new book is called The Future of Fallout and Other Episodes in Radioactive Worldmaking. It's published by Duke University Press. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for writing this book and for joining us today. Well, it's my great pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. I very much appreciate it. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 